All right, let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, again, we just thank you. Thank you, my God, for this beautiful morning already, for your manifest presence amongst us. Hear those prayers we lifted up, Lord God. Do a work in lives, Lord, we ask. And Lord, I just pray now, anoint the word. And Lord, let us take the quality we're going to talk about today and really look to apply it to our lives so that people would see Christ in us. And we just thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. Being today is Palm Sunday. Many sermons, studies that pastors and teachers do will revolve what is called the triumphal entry, yes? When Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time of his earthly ministry to go to the cross. Now, many times pastors, teachers will speak to the significance of why Jesus came, and that would be extremely apropos for any Sunday, but especially for this time of the year that we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And others may speak to the fickleness of the crowd of how Jesus entered Jerusalem, and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. But within just a few days, they're crying out what? Crucify him, crucify him, which demonstrates the true heart of man. Yes? Or one could do a study on how Jesus fulfilled the many prophetic messages of the first coming of Messiah, and that also would be very appropriate for a Palm Sunday message. But this morning, I'd like to read the account of what we now call Palm Sunday and really look at this portion of Scripture from a different point of view, one that will glorify the Lord as we look into the heart of Christ, and one that will challenge us if we truly desire to emulate Christ in our lives and if we truly desire to be Christ-like. Do you hear me? So with that said, if you will, turn with me to Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, which is going to be a prelude text into the main text. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. And it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place. We sang it this morning. The kids sang it. To fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on it. A very large crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, hence Palm Sunday. The crowds went ahead of him, and, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answers, This is Jesus, a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. How exhilarated the crowd must have been, thinking that the king of Israel was finally entering, the one who would sit on David's throne and rid them of Roman rule and take the throne uh, in Jerusalem and lift that nation of Israel back to the standing it had while under King David. But they missed something. Because he, Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, did not come riding in on his white stallion to conquer the Roman rule. Instead, he came in on a donkey, the lowliest of all the animals, to conquer sin and death. A far more formidable foe than any Roman emperor. Do you hear me? Because Roman emperors passed by, but sin and death is still with us. Yes? 
So he came that day riding lowly on a donkey. He did not come in on the white stallion. And family, is this attribute, the humility of Christ, that I would like to focus on this morning. And as we examine this attitude of our Savior, we may all need to examine ourselves and really see, do we really emulate this quality of Christ, or do we need to step back and look on how we can now put that quality of Christ, Christ-like humility, into our lives so we can reflect it to others. So let's look at the definition of humility from an ethical point of view as well as a theological, biblical point of view. Listen to these definitions, and we get a pretty good idea of what it means to be humble. In ethics, humility is freedom from pride and arrogance, humbleness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, humility consists in lowliness of mind, again, lowering ourselves, not being prideful, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God, self-abasement, penitence for sin, and submission to the divine will. So this morning, I really would like to do a study on humility and see how we as Christians should incorporate both the ethical and theological definition of what humility is into our lives so we can be Christ-like and emulate Christ in our lives. So we're going to look at three main points. It's going to be the call to humility, the characteristics of humility, and the character of the humble servant we are called to be like, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to begin with a couple of scriptures just to kind of lay the foundation to get that thought in your mind of where we're going. Listen to Matthew 21.5, which we read. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Again, he didn't come on the stallion. He came lowly on the lowest of the beast of burdens, showing his humility as he enters Jerusalem. All righty? Matthew 20.28 says this. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Amen? And the main text we're going to look at, which is one of my favorites, which I'm going to ask you to turn to, which we're really going to pull from this morning, is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And we really get a mindset of the humility of Christ in these verses. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. You know how I remember those epistles, G-E-P-C, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it works for me anyway. All right, Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but looking to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to, use, uh, to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found as an appearance of a man. Ready? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Result? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. So let's begin with point one. 
What is the call to humility? Well, it's really found in the first two verses. And if you look at those first two verses in your Bible, on your phone, or whatever you're using, those ifs that you see, if, 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 should really be rendered since, since. And what Paul is referring to is the wonderful spiritual blessings that believers have because of the salvation relationship that they now have with Jesus Christ. All right? He's saying this, since you have experienced these great spiritual blessings, I'm imploring you to do something, and that is to walk in and strive for Christian unity. That's what he's saying. If you have already experienced all these things, being in Christ, strive towards being unified in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And so he writes, Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have that same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And these terms refer to a commitment of love towards one another and a call to unity. The Lord despises dissension amongst his children. He says he hates it because when there is dissension among us, it's letting the devil get a foothold to do a split in the church and destroy the work in the church. Do you hear me? And if the world out there sees us at each other's throats and they're going to say, and those are Christians and they have this thing, relationship with Christ, look, they're fighting amongst themselves. There's dissension among themselves. And listen, no two Christians, no matter how spiritually mature or how far along in the walk they are, are at the same point. And they'll never see things exactly alike. You hear me? But if they are united, if we are united in love, we will never let inconsequential differences divide us. Look, we're going to have differences. We have different personalities. But we shouldn't let those inconsequential differences divide us as the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about biblical truths. We stand on biblical truths. If someone comes in and says, you know, it's salvation plus baptism, I have to stand there, you have to stand there and say, no, 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 this is what the word says. But we can do it in a way where we don't get our backs up or when we talk to the unsaved and, in, and they're seeing things from a different point of view, whether it's abortion, gun control, you can't just say, ah, He's a lost sinner. He's going to hell. You know what I mean? We have to speak to them with the love and humility of Christ and to each other with the love and unity of Christ so it doesn't cause division and dissension. Amen? All right. As Christians, we should always keep in the forefront the purposes of and the glory of Jesus Christ. That should always be our goal, his glory and the purposes that he has for us. And listen, the call to Christians is not uniformity. We're not cookie-cutter Christians. But there's a call to unity, and we can liken it to two things, one biblical, one just not biblical. If you go to a concert, there's a symphony going on, but you have the stringed instruments over here, and Danny, if I don't know all the terms, don't yell at me. You have the horns and stuff over here. You have all these different things, different instruments that make different sounds, but together it's a beautiful symphony. And if one person is out of key, you hear that above the symphony. So it is in the body of Christ. He wants us to be unified. And if one thing is out of key, people will pick it up. Do you hear me? Or that's why 1 Corinthians 12 talks to it about a body. The body is many different things, a foot, a hand, an eye, an ear. But why? They all work to the homeostasis, for those science people out there, for the benefit of the body, that everything works in unison. And one thing's out of whack, the whole body's out of whack. Get a headache. Get a toothache, all right? And it can throw your day completely off. Get a migraine, and let me tell you, you ain't doing nothing, trust me, all right? But everything works together in the body for the best of the whole body. Everything works together in the orchestra for the best of the concert, yes? And that's what God wants with us in the body of Christ, that we are in unity so that we work together, why? For his glory, for the edification of the body, and to reach those guys out there. 
Amen? Praise the Lord. All right. Paul's, now, Paul's call to walk in loving unity is motivated, ready, by one you've heard, an attitude of gratitude. We've got to have an attitude of gratitude to the Lord for what he's done for us. We start off with thanking God that we are saved, that we're born again, that we're in relationship with him. And, and what he's done for us, and he has, us as a church, right, that all men will know we're his disciples by what? Our love for one another. Not a disunity, but our unity. All righty? And um, it's this love that will keep us together. It's an agape love. And Pastor Stein, my pastor, say it's the humble sacrifice of self for the benefit of another with no strings attached for the glory of God. So we humble ourselves to do for others, not that we're looking for anything in return, but to give glory and honor to the Lord. Amen? So it's a, an agape love that we share one with another. What Paul is saying is now that you're in Christ, since you have truly experienced the blessings of being in Christ, then let's see the spiritual fruit visibly and tangibly in our lives. Let it be seen. A tree is known by his fruit. Amen? Family, true Christianity is gratitude and reflection. Listen, gratitude to Jesus for his great love, mercy, compassion, and grace, and that we then reflect that same qualities to other. Agape love, compassion, mercy, grace. Do you hear me? Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. It says this. My prayer is not for them alone. He was talking about his disciples. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. You know who that is? Us. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that we may be as one, they may be as one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought together in complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. What he's saying is, I want to see the unity in the body of Christ, the same unity, Father, that we have in the Trinity. Let it be in the body, the body of believers. And I want you to see something here. Do you notice that there is no mention of humility in verses 1 and 2? And you might be saying, I thought that what the sermon was going to be about was about humility. But we haven't even mentioned it yet, have we? And there's a reason. The plea of Paul in these opening verses is a call to loving unity amongst his people. But family, listen. You can't have unity amongst people if we don't have the quality of humility in our lives because sooner or later we'll get offended, we'll get our backs up, and it will cause that dissension and disunity. So Paul's going to speak to humility now as the basis for having unity in the body of Christ. Amen? So he goes on. Listen, and Paul now will go on and speak to the second point, which is a visible characteristics of humility in action. So what does it mean? to have a humble attitude. What does humility look like that we can emulate it? Well, I'm glad you asked, as my pastor used to say, because Paul will go on and give us four, four, four characteristics of humility. Good thing I don't teach math, all right? Four characteristics of humility. First of all, in verse three it states this, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition. You hear me? Church, it's not surprising that selfishness is listed first since it's really at the root of all the sins we commit. Listen, there are three roots of sin. Selfishness, it's behind the lust of our eyes, is it not? Because we want what we see. 
covetousness. So it's behind that. It's behind the lust of the flesh because we want to desire, some passion or desire. So it's behind that. We're selfish. We want to feel good, whether it's drugs, alcohol, you name it. Put, put a label on it. And it's also behind pride because we want what we want when we write, want it. And we're always going to be the head and not the tail. We're always going to be right and not wrong. So if you take selfishness and you look at those three root causes of sin, it's right there. It's right there stirring the pot, stirring us on. Listen, it was selfish desire that inflamed Lucifer's pride to rebel against God. Just read Isaiah 14, 12 to 17. And it was the selfish desires of Adam and Eve as they look of that forbidden fruit and they took of it. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride. Behind it was their selfish desire to have those. And it is the root behind every subsequent sin throughout the history of men. It's that old cliche, I want what I want, and no one or nothing is going to stand in the way of me getting it. And we see that in our world today. And listen, the Greek for selfish ambition, listen to this, describes someone who strives to advance themselves by using flattery. Do we not see that today? Deceit, false accusation, manipulation, and any other tactic that brings an advantage over another person or over a situation. It is really, and it, if you look at Galatians 5.20, it's in there. It's one of the uh, sins of the flesh, selfish ambition. So if you go to Galatians 5 and, and it says, these are the sins of the flesh, immorality, this, this, selfish ambition is right in there because it's right behind many of the sins we will commit. And I have a question. How far have you gone or how far will you go to get what you want? Think about it because there may have to be some soul-searching, reevaluation, repentance, and replacement. Think about it throughout our lives. How far have we gone or how far will we go to get what we want? Manipulate? Deceit? Bend the truth? Other things to get what we want. Yes? So we have to do some soul searching on that. All right. Now, that was the first one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Second characteristic, Paul goes on in verse 3. It says, do nothing out of vain conceit. Vain is empty. Conceit refers to a highly exaggerated view of oneself, a highly exaggerated self-image, if you will. Selfish ambition pursues the goal. Vain conceit considers one always right. It's that person who's always got to get the last word. I won't say a word. person who always has to get the last word. Win at all cost to prove you were right. The yeah, butter. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. And after a while, it's like, yeah, one more yeah, but, and I'm going to take your vocal cords. But, you know, it's the person who always has to be right. Vain conceit. They always have to come out as the winner. All righty? And then third, third characteristic, Paul writes, but in humility, in lowliness of mind, consider others better than yourself. This, this, what this does, it refuses to stand there and compare someone else or us to someone else to make ourselves look better. Well, at least I don't do what he or she does. You know what I mean? But what we have to really do is look at ourselves in view of how we stand in front of God, and it's a very humbling thing. When we see ourselves as wretched sinners before a holy God, there is no way that we can compare ourselves to others and think ourselves better than others, because any sin separates you from God. We are not justified. We are not righteous in any way. There is no unrighteous, no, not one. The only way we're considered justified or righteous is because we've been clothed in that of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we can't compare to others. As a, a really beautiful quote from Robert E. Lee. He was in a church, and I think I may have told you this before, and uh, a slave came in, and he stood in the back of the church, and Robert E. Lee said, come up here, son. 
We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Do you hear me? No one's better than anybody else. I don't care if it's the guy in the pulpit, the guy playing music. We're all equal. We're all sinners, and we all stand at the foot of the cross equal, so we can't think of ourselves better than others. Amen? Listen to what uh, Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy 15, 16. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Hmm? But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.9. Again, Paul speaking, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Imagine what Paul could have said to the crowds that were listening to him. Hey, I had a personal experience with Jesus. He called me to be an apostle. And he could, he could have put on an air, if you will, and lorded it over people, but he didn't. He says, I'm the worst of sinners. I persecuted the church. He humbled himself so as to meet the needs of others. He didn't lord it over them. There are times that he correct, like with the, first, with the Corinthian church, absolutely. But he went as a humble servant of Jesus Christ to minister. All right? And it's this kind of approach that we will never compare ourselves to others in order to inflate our position as we work with each other or we go out to witness to the lost, that we don't look at ourselves as better. We're on equal keel. Amen? And the fourth characteristic that Paul writes is in verse 4. It says, look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is simply the action that's going to display the other three, that when we put it into practice, that we take that godly attitude of lowliness, that we don't think ourselves better than others, that we don't do things out of self and ambition, and we're going to practically display a humble attitude. Listen to Romans 12, 15, and I'll give you some insight on how we do this. Ready? It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. So when something good happens in somebody's life, we rejoice with them. And then it says, mourn with those who mourn. When something really terrible happens with somebody, we mourn with them. We get involved in their lives. And I'm going to give you, I feel like throwing my jacket off, some real insight here. One of the things, church, we all have to learn how to do is listen. Do you hear me? We have to listen when other people talk. I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. Someone says, hey, listen, I just won this award in bowling. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you, I won an award. When it, and you start talking about yourself. Let the person talk and rejoice with them. No, we want to throw out what we, our accolades. Or when someone mourns and is down and, and they're grieving. Oh, that happened to me, brother. And we start, like, going back and talking about ourselves. No. Take time and Listen. Listen, I always go back and say, Job's friends, even though they were knuckleheads, they sat there for seven days and didn't say a word. They listened. And that's what we have to learn to do. If you want to invest in the lives of people, listen. And I'm going to get on my horse now about my pet peeve. Those phones are destroying relationships. They really are. We don't talk anymore. We don't listen anymore. Do you know how rude it is when you, someone talks for 10 minutes, you go to say something, they pick up their phone. It's like, oh, you're really interested in my life, I see. Guys, put those phones down. How can you have a relationship or show interest in another person as soon as they go to talk to you? It's rude. It's rude. Even in the doctor's office. What do we do? You see people sitting there. Right? What did I do? 
My wife was going for one of those wonderful colonoscopies, tests. I was sitting in the office. There's a couple there. I made a conversation with them. I handed them a business card to the church and talked to them about Jesus. If we're on those phones, how can you witness to other people? Hey, you want to see my, my app? No. God's called us to get invest in people's lives, but these things are taking away that. They are. I'm sorry. Honey, how you doing? Oh, I'm bad. Forgive me, Lord. I'm confessing. I'll be talking to my wife. Candy crushing it, right? What'd you say? I ain't saying it again. Oh, and she tries to say it. What, what, what are you saying? I'm not saying it again. You are, you are listening. So I get a little pride thing going, but man, alive, I'm talking to you. You don't have that thing. God help us. I'm sorry. I really got a tirade. I'm actually sweating. <laughs> We're to be invest ourselves in people. And you can't invest yourself in people if you're not listening to them and you're off playing, I don't know what, Mario Kart. All right? Listen to Romans 14, 19, and 21. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Verse 21, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Family, listen, there may be times when we have to put some things aside that don't make us stumble. They're not sin, but won't make us stumble or fall. But it might make another person stumble or fall. And the classic example, look, you might be having a gig at your house. And is it wrong to have a bottle of beer or a glass of wine? No, but you don't know who's coming. You don't know who struggles with addictions. So if you have to put those things aside so that your brother is edified and built up and not torn down, so be it. So be it. Um, I have a thing down here. Even at the men's retreat, Pastor Tom, who I thought was great, he made a couple of comments that some of our older saints were very offended by, language-wise. They were a little off-color, off-center jokes, but they were really offended by it because they felt that a Christian man shouldn't be talking like that. But sometimes we let our guard down. We were amongst all men, so, you know, we can talk like men. No, you have to be Christ first, man second. Amen? And I'm I'm bearing soul today. Fifteen years ago, I wasn't at the place I'm at today, thank you, Lord. But Rich Sugden came into the first for one of the few times. And I told an off-center joke. And he wasn't sure about coming back. That would have destroyed me, because Rich is probably one of my closest friends now. And if he would have never came back, I would have never had the friendship that we have today. Right, Rich? But praise God, he came back. So you never know. Even your speech has to be Christ-like, because you don't know who may be offended by it. Well, we're we're amongst guys. I'm going to need your prayer on... May or June, June 1st. The guys from work want to take me out. Now, this is a rebel group. So I'm praying by the end of the night. By the end of the night, pray for me, because before I leave, I'm going to stand up and give them the gospel and say, if I leave one thing after 30 years, you need Christ. Amen. Amen. So, but let me, a rough group. Rough group. Uh, one of them at somebody's retirement party last year, just never saw it before. Right off the chair, backwards drunk. Whoop, fell right over onto the floor. They had to carry him out. So that's the group. But we must be all things to all people. And then Romans 15, 1 to 3 says this, We who are strong are to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but is it written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So we want to build each other up. Family, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love each other as Christ has loved us. Yes? 
So at times, we may have to put off of some of the things we do to help build up or edify each other in the body of Christ. Yes? All right. Listen to what I just quoted. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 13. It says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. We're asked to minister at the level that people are at. Now, I'm not talking about sinful behaviors. Obviously, we don't act in sin to win people who are doing it. But didn't Jesus go to Matthew's house? And there were sinners there who were eating with the tax collector? But he didn't go there. He didn't sin. But he went there. He walked amongst them, and he showed them who he was and witnessed of Christ to the people there. I'm sorry, he was going to preach about Christ, but he was Christ. But he went there and witnessed to the people. He was a witness to the people, yes? And we can do the same. Not that we sin, and I wouldn't say, okay, all right, go out to a club or out to a bar, but you can still have these unsaved people that you can interact with and share the gospel with them. We don't exclude them, yes? So we want to be a witness for Christ. We can become all things to all people to share Jesus to them. Amen? Family, listen, when we Christians look to, choose to, cultivate these four characteristics, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit, not thinking ourselves better than others, and looking to the interests of others, if we incorporate those things into our lives, we will learn to walk in Christ-like humility. Amen? But we have to incorporate them. Now, Paul will make a transition here in verse 5 from a discussion of characteristics of humility to looking at our supreme example, Jesus Christ. He's going to take it now and say, okay, I gave you the characteristics. You want to see an example? Let's look at the Lord. So look at verse 5. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Family, unity among Christians being an example of Christ can only come from an attitude of believers who truly apply those characteristics that we just discussed. This very attitude was supremely manifested in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was. All righty? So look at uh, verse 6 and 7. It says, if, um, first of all, let me say this. If Jesus only concerned himself with himself, he would have never entered humanity. Do you hear me? If he was only concerned about the Godhead, he would have never came down to save us. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. It says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And we've done multiple studies here at Neighborhood. That word servant is bond slave. He became a bond slave for us. Jesus was primarily concerned about the welfare of others, or he never would have come to this world as the incarnate man, Jesus. Christ, uh, Jesus. The second, listen, the second person of the Godhead, he was with the Father in the beginning. What does John 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the one who with the Father created all things. He's the one who sustains all things. But what did he do? He stepped off that throne of heaven, clothed himself in human likeness, and walks amongst us. Yes? 
He's the one who came full of grace and truth. Jesus left the glories, the riches, the comforts of heaven for the spiritual benefit of lost, sinful, and condemned mankind. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, understatement, yet for, his, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, may become rich. He left it all, and he didn't have to, to save us and reconcile us to the Father so that we could inherit all the riches of heaven and glory. Amen? He left the glory of heaven. He left the worship of thousands upon thousands of angels that fell down before him and worshipped him. He humbled himself and came to be the one who would be the sacrifice for sin. Left all of that for a moment. I just want to contrast two attitudes here. Watch this. I want you to look at the attitude of the devil, Satan, and the attitude of Jesus Christ. Watch this. The devil. This is what it says about him in Isaiah 14. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit and throne on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will, I will, I will. Selfish. Hmm? How about Jesus? Not my will, Father, but your will be done. I will, I will, I will. Your will. Amen? Lucifer desired the throne of heaven. Jesus left the throne of heaven for us. Lucifer wanted to be the creator. Jesus became the created. Amen? Result? Lucifer is cast down, eternally condemned. Jesus is exalted and eternally crowned. Which attitude do we follow? The I, 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 or not my will, but your will be done, Father. Only we know. Only we and God. And we conclude that Jesus, just by his incarnation, speaks volumes, volumes to his demonstration of humility and a a humble spirit. And listen to what Paul writes in verse 4 again. He was looking to the interest of others. And who are those others? Look around. Amen? And the key is this, that the Christian who desires to follow the example of the humble and submissive attitude of Christ exemplify true humility by looking to the interests of others. If you want to see if it's really reflected in your life, how much are you willing to do for the benefit of others? And that'll tell you. Romans 12.10 says this, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. And I love this one from Galatians 6.2, Carry each other's burden, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. What does it tell us in Ephesians? By grace we're saved to do good works. Well, that's it. We're saved, and now we want to build each other up and look to the interest of others. When there's a need, we fill it. If Judy Duck needs something, we rally around her. If Donna needs finances to help her get through, we rally around her. That's what we do. We're our family. Amen? We're the body of Christ. Family, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. He served others rather than seeking others to serve him. And he's the only one, think about it, who truly um, should be served by all creation. The only one. Yet he humbled himself and he served others. Yes? He took on the very nature of the servant. He laid aside his position that came with all of those glories of heaven. He laid aside his independent attributes of God and submitted himself to his Father's will. He did it all for us. And listen, just because 
Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. He comes, and instead of being the master, he became the servant. Laid aside his godly attributes, humbled himself for us, and went to the cross. Yes? And during his earthly ministry, we have numerous, listen to this, I have down numerous examples of how he humbled himself. He went tired. What happened? One time there's a storm brewing, and Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat. He was exhausted from constant ministering. Read the Gospels. The man for three and a half years just went and went and went and ministered to others. Healed, fed, did. Yes? He was hungry. The desert temptation went 40 days without food. And then he's tempted. Hey, make these stones into bread. And he was tempted. Again, back to the desert temptation. So Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sins. He was tested. How many times did the Pharisees try to set him up? Hey, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See this woman caught in adultery? Shouldn't we stone her? Constantly tested by the Pharisees. Hungry, tired, tempted, tested, yes? And even when he ministered. When Jesus speaks to the, the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman. First of all, men were here and women were here. So they wouldn't even talk, Jewish men wouldn't talk to Jewish women, if you will. But now this is a Samaritan woman who, I mean, is like lowly. And what does Jesus do? He ministers to her. He meets her at her level. And what happens? She gets saved and a whole town gets saved. Now he could have said, look, you Samaritan dog, I need a glass of water. Just get to the well, da-da-da. But no, he ministers to her and she comes to salvation, and the whole town comes to salvation. Why? Because he humbled himself. Not just as an incarnation, but how he dealt with every human being. The only ones he ever got uppity with were the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. Otherwise, he ministered to each one in humble humility. Yes? A redundancy there. All right? And then one of the greatest demonstrations of Jesus' humility is on what we call Marty Thursday the night that he washes his disciples' feet. And I, for time's sake, I'll just read verses 12 to 17. It says this, When he had finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he said, Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and that's rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash each other's feet. Now listen, it ain't like today where you wear the nice white socks, keep your feet nice and clean, these guys were walking around in those sandals, filthy, dirty roads. Their feet were disgusting. So here he is saying, if I, your, your master and Lord and teacher, can wash your disgusting, dirty feet, so do the same for each other. And he goes on, he says this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus gives us an example there in washing the disciples' feet, saying, don't think yourself better than others. If I can get down and wash the dirty feet of these grungy men, how much more should my servants do for each other? Yes? And church, the ultimate example of humility is seen in what we celebrate this week, the passion, the passion of what all that Jesus will go through. Look at verse 8 in Philippians 2. And seeing being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And I believe when it said, we read the words, he humbled himself, it's talking to those pre-crucifixion abuses that Jesus took even before he went to the cross. Listen to Isaiah 53, uh, verse 3 and then 7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man suffering and, unfamiliar, and, and familiar with pain, like one from whom hide their faces he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. When he does pre-crucifixion abuses, taken from the garden, his beard plucked out, beaten with a staff, crown of thorns put on his head, mocked, insulted. Now, from what I read, when Rome crucified somebody, they were naked. So socially humiliated as he hangs naked on a cross, and he was brutalized and killed. That's what happened to our Lord and Savior. That's what he came to do for us. And listen to uh, 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. It says, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to those who judges justly. What would we do if we were in Jesus' shoes when someone slapped us, spit in our face, mocked us, ridiculed us? Will we get our backs up? Will we retaliate with words? Left hook, right hook, you know what I mean? Seriously. But this is what Jesus went through so we could be set free. He is the ultimate example of, hum- of humility. All right? And listen, because he did all those things, went through all that, humbled himself, went to the cross and died for us, if we read now verses 9 to 11, because of his faithfulness, the Father will lift him up and bring him back and glorify him with the glory he had before the creation of the world. Look at verses 9 and 11 again. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In his humble obedience, Jesus reconciled man to God through the cross. And he left the glories of heaven so he would do the Father's will. And so what does the Father do? He will glorify his Son with the glory he has before the creation of the world. Listen to this. Not only is he exalted to the highest position of authority, but he's also given the name of most significance. Yes, he has the name Jesus, but now he's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the Old Testament. That's another name for God, Yahweh, the Lord. That's the the God-given name. So now he's not only the exalted Jesus, but he is the Lord of glory. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over heaven and earth. So the Father lifts him up because of his humble obedience, sets him right next to him on a throne, and says, now you are Lord of everything. Amen? Amen. And it says that every, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. When it says every tongue will confess, that means the angels and all the deceased saints are in glory. That means that all of us who are here and all lost sinners, and it means that everybody, Satan, everybody, every created angel, fallen, etc., will say, bow before him and say, you are the Lord of glory and exalt him. Everything has been put under his feet. Jesus now receives from the Father his reward, if you will, for his complete obedience to the Father's will. He humbled himself, shows us the example, went to the way of the cross, and it was lifted up and seated at the Father's right hand. Amen? So what can we take from the message this morning? First and foremost, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because of that old selfishness that you don't want to give up those things that the world is offering you. Oh, isn't it offering you such great things? Drug addiction, alcohol abuse, divorce. What else does it offer? Eternal condemnation. That's what the world's offering you. And what we do is we let our selfish desires get in the way, thinking we're going to lose out. But if you're here today, don't let that stand in the way of giving yourself to the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for you so that you could have eternal life. 
He's God come in the flesh who as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday died then was rose to life and in him we rise to life. He ascended to heaven and in him we ascend with him. So if you're here today and never claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let today be the day of salvation. Amen? And if you're a Christian, I implore you and me to purpose to have the same mindset as our Lord and to purpose to incorporate those four characteristics we looked at this morning. And we can. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can. We can humble ourselves. We can walk in humility and compassion. We can walk in gentleness and kindness, even to our enemies or those who insult us or those who would do us wrong. Why? Because he's empowered us to do so and he's called us to do so. Go see that movie. I can only imagine. It is one of the greatest movies about redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Amen? We're called to forgive. We're called to let go. And we're called to walk in the humility of Christ. Amen? And as disciples of Christ, let us humble ourselves before the Lord, being a living sacrifice and purpose to live as Jesus did. And say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And you know what? That may mean a change of priorities. It may mean a change of direction if you truly want to submit yourself under the Father's will. When it comes to things, what choices are you going to make? Are you going to choose the things of this world or are you going to choose the things of God? Are you going to be in his kingdom or are you going to try to have a foot in each world? Well, you can't have a foot in each world. You're either in his camp or in Satan's camp. Make your choice, Christian. Amen. Amen. And Christian, as a humble servant of the Lord, are we willing to look at the interests of others, even if it interferes with our lives and lifestyles? If something comes up and somebody needs your particular gift or skill, are you willing to sacrifice your time or your efforts or your finances to help that person out? As a, as a believer, a believer in the body of Christ. And even if you do that for someone that's not a believer, you're humbling yourself and you don't know what kind of influence you'll have on their life to bring them to Christ when you show them the love of Christ. Amen? And let me leave you with this. Just as the Father rewarded his son for his humble obedience, he's going to reward us. He's going to reward us. And I can't tell you what those rewards are going to be, and I'm not promising you a new car or a million dollars, but I'm speaking to the rewards of God's favor upon us in every area of our life. Can I share it, Marty? Marty, faithful. Faithful, yes? His daughter, Meadowbrook Parkway, gets a flat, pulls off. Now, I learned, right, Ray, that I can't call AAA because they don't have the right to pick up cars on the parkways. Oh, out of nowhere, a good Samaritan comes, changes her tire, takes her off to Meadowbrook, meets her at a tire store, buys her a new tire. Marty calls him and says, let me reimburse you. He says, no. That's God's favor. As a Christian man, praise the Lord. But Marty's going, I can't get on a parkway. My van is a commercial van. What am I going to do? Here comes a good Samaritan. Not only fixes a tire, gets her a new tire, pays for it, and doesn't require reimbursement from a father. But that's finding God's favor, God's grace. Now, was it a million dollars? Was it a new car? No, but it was a need and a time that God provided for the man and his family because he's been faithful. And, try, and what a witness to Judy and Jackie of the power of God and what Christians do. Amen? That's God. And listen, we will be rewarded based on our faithfulness. And it may be tangible or it may not be tangible. We may, we may not see it till the other side of eternity. But we do as unto the Lord and however he rewards us, praise God. Because you know what? You ain't going to hell. That's, the, well, that's a big reward right off the giddy app, is it not? I'm saved. 
we're saved. We're on our way to glory. So whatever he gives us after that is gravy. Is gravy, yes? All right. Well, I have Danny. I know this was a little different approach to Palm Sunday. But what happened that day, some 2,000 years ago, gives us great insight into an attribute of Christ, and that's his humility. And it's one that we should desire to incorporate in our lives, and here's the big word, if is our true desire to be molded into the image of Jesus. Then we have to emulate him. We have to exemplify humility in our lives, especially amongst the body of Christ, because he doesn't want to see dissension or disunity because of minor differences in, in the body, yes? And let me leave you with this scripture verse. 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace, grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he may lift you up in due time. And let me leave you with one biblical example. Abraham and Lot. Massive herds of flocks of sheep and goats, and here they are. And they have to figure out which way they're going. And Abraham says to his nephew, pick which one you want. Lot looks, and he sees what looks like Egypt, what looks like the world, and off he goes. And he got sucked up into Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's head was down, and God said, lift up your head and look. This is the land I will give you. In his humility, he was blessed by God and got the promised land. And guess what? That's where the Jews are. That's where the Jews will be, because that is the promise that God gave to them. We can have a Lot mentality, or we can have an Abraham mentality. We can have a Christ mentality, or we can have a Lucifer mentality. God calls us to walk in humility and to love him and serve him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other. And those four characteristics, nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit, yes? Nothing ourselves better than anybody else in this body, yes? And then, oh, Rob, I just went brain dead, and looking for the interest of others, amen? This time I'm going to ask the worship group to come up and just... Uh, end with a song, and then this morning we have a band.